Hello, and welcome to the Empower App Show. I'm your host, Leo Dion of Bright Digit. Here with us today is Steve Lipton. Hey, Steve. Hello, how are you? Good. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, I'm Steve Lipton. I am owner of makeapppie.com, which is a training company that works with uh, LinkedIn Learning, among others, to create training videos and other training materials. And you do a lot of training material, obviously, in the iOS development and Swift space. And we did an episode, and I wish I remember all my episode numbers, but we had uh, John Knox on talking about hiring. And one of the challenges he talked about was the fact that employees sometimes, or employers, I should say, don't do a good job helping their staff train their employees and keep them up to date. So I thought it would be a great opportunity to have you on and kind of talk about that. And specifically, you want to talk about what's called the Red Queen Dilemma and how that might affect how employers treat their employees and how there's a relationship there. I'll let you go ahead and explain the Red Queen Dilemma exactly. Okay, because, yeah, this themes a lot of what I think about in training. And what that tends to be is that it goes back to Alice through the looking glass. And she was talking to the Red Queen who was talking about that they always have to run because everything is constantly moving. And just to keep in place, you have to run fast enough. You have to run faster to actually get ahead. And that's a dilemma we find in technology. It's not just training, but training is a huge part of what you have to do to keep going. So you find that things get obsolete very quickly. And so we need to be constantly on the ball on training. So besides just a lack of training, what are some common mistakes managers and companies do when it comes to helping their staff? And I know this is especially a problem in the mobile development space. There's several things that can go wrong. One of the biggest troubles is confusing coding with programming is a huge one. And so a lot of times I find managers looking at things in terms of coding and that you know one language versus another language or one syntax versus another syntax. And that's not the whole game of programming. And many times internally as well, there are certain cultural things, certain programming patterns that need to be known in order to do it. I just ran across a good example of this where I have an employee who's been hard coding numbers instead of making the parameters, which of course means that nobody else can use their things unless, and this is what they assumed that every employee who needed to change this function was going to go in and change the dates in hard code. <laughs> and this was something our customer service people were going to be changing code. Yeah. And so what happens is people say, oh, I just need this person who has this amount of experience in code. It's not just code. Second thing I find is many times there's not been a good need assessment, which means they don't know what people really need. It's like, okay, we've got all these big shiny things. I can pick out Swift UI as a good example. I think we're going to be talking about Swift UI quite a bit today. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we will, because it's a good example yeah. of way too much. <laughs> but yeah, for example, Swift UI. Oh yeah, here's this bright, shiny Swift UI, which is great. I mean, I've written a course on it already, but even with Swift UI, it's bright and shiny, and it may not be exactly what you need to be looking at when you're really looking at number formatters instead. That's something that you need to start thinking about. Where is your real issues? And the third issue, which particularly in the technology space, people tend to forget about, 
is the soft skills training. I mean, there's a lot of skills that are necessary in listening and teamwork that if you don't have, you're not going to have a good team to begin with. You're not going to be able to get from your customers, both internal and external, if you're not listening well, the actual requirements you need for your application. So let me see if I can um, parse some of this out. So it sounds like one of the big issues is that they don't understand the difference. When you, when you say coding, what I'm hearing is like understanding syntax and API. Yeah. So like, how do I build a user interface in Swift UI? Okay, everybody can do, like, if you follow, Apple actually did a half-decent tutorial on how to do that on their website. Pretty easy to pick up that stuff, honestly. Where I find, like, especially with Swift UI, is understanding the patterns and, like, the data binding and, like, how to organize that stuff in a healthy fashion so that your app runs really well. Like, to me, like, that's more of the challenge with Swift UI is, like you said, the programming, understanding the patterns, MVVC patterns, and how to do that. Or just, like, basic stuff like not hard coding dates, which hopefully folks learn as they progress. So that sounds like one thing. And then the other one is not trying to go for what's necessarily technically cool, but what actually affects the business and actually helps the customer and builds the business and business of that app, so to speak. And then lastly, it sounds like soft skills, like soft skills training is super important, which that goes without saying, because we need to communicate. None of us work in a silo. Even those of us that are solo, like myself, like we still need to like communicate with clients, communicate with potential customers and things like that. And soft skills are super important. Does that sound pretty much like what you said? Yeah. I think you've got it pretty much straight. Yeah. So what's the benefit of like training the staff as opposed to just hiring new employees? Because I see this as a big problem is like people just don't, I don't want to say like respect their current employees, but they just kind of like, oh, well, it's cheaper for us just to hire somebody new who knows this thing as opposed to like training the staff that they currently have. I think you got two problems with it. And I've sometimes seen this if you look at some ads for people who are looking for different jobs. And you go down the LinkedIn lists of uh, iOS developers, and you'll find at least one or two that say 10 years experience in Swift or something like that, <laughs> which, I mean, Swift's five years old, so it's not going to happen. But you'll find ones like that all over the place. And oh the idea is that your developers, programmers are interchangeable parts. The problem with that is that, first of all, it's not true. And second of all, there are so many internal APIs to anybody, unless you're working 100% from scratch on every project. You've got internal APIs, you've got internal databases. That's a culture that has to learn all that stuff. So yeah, you may bring someone in who knows the newest version of Swift and might know 5.1, where most of your staff knows 5.0. Great. However, most of your staff knows where all the database files are. Yep. You're having to train all those people on how to get a database figure it out. It's going to take you just as long as doing the couple hundred changes between 5.0 and 5.1. It's just like also just the knowledge of the business itself. Yes. Outside of programming. Like you said, it's one thing to know how to do a specific API. But on the other hand, if you're running, I mean, let's just say Uber, for instance, you know, you're building an app for Uber. There's a lot of company knowledge about, you know, how to get a car and how to make sure that their driver is there and how they get there on time. 
and like the business knowledge that is built in, you lose that if you're just going to keep hiring new people for an API. Oh yeah. I mean, I dealt with that directly and saw how much different it is in one of my first jobs out of college was as a, a support tech on site for installing a accounts receivable system for physicians. And you'd think that doctors would be really easy, that you'd just be doing the same kind of billing all over again. And it doesn't matter if it's the same kind of practice or not. Everybody's got something so different between their state and local regulations, between how they run their practice and all that stuff. They're all different. Every business is going to be different. And because every business is different, you're going to find that nothing is right. And so you have to go through all this training. I guess you could call it culture. And there's lots of cultural, both internal and tech culture, for lack of a better word, that you need to be careful about. So all of those things also need to be trained. Yeah, exactly. So we talked about the benefit of training your staff and the benefit of having all that company knowledge. But on the other hand, there are situations where it might be beneficial to um, hire like a consultant or a contractor. Can you think of like some specific situations where that might make sense? Sure. Wasn't a contractor in the tech sector. I was in the restaurant sector for uh, many years as an interruption in my career in IT and development. And in that time, I learned a lot about consulting. Where you find consultants useful is the exact opposite of where you find employees useful. We just talked about that there is this internal knowledge that you need to have all the employees have. And that's part of training as much as knowledge from outside that you can hire in. A consultant, you're looking at the exact opposite. A consultant is someone that is going to look at something and take it from the outside perspective and say, hey, you're doing all kinds of crazy things you probably shouldn't be doing. And from that perspective, that's where consultants are very useful. In my other job outside of MakeAppPi, I will also use consultants when I have bigger projects that are beyond the capacity of what I have here. So there are times when there's something that I'm just not going to be able to handle or the people here are not going to be able to handle. So for example, if I ever went to something with machine learning, I just can't wrap my head around that stuff at this point. Yeah, least. that makes sense. I would hire out. We have a couple of things. For example, there's a couple of people here who want to do stuff with vision systems. I am not the person to talk to. And sometimes you just have to say, okay, I am not here. I am not going to be able to get this particular thing done. I'm going to hire out to get it. And you might hire out in order to have someone just make the thing, or you might hire out to have someone train you and get those things under control, be it a trainer or other training materials. It seems like part of it is, like you said, getting someone when you're beyond capacity or that special knowledge, like you said, but also just having that 10,000 meter view of actually being ignorant of the inside company knowledge and getting that outsider perspective can sometimes be helpful to the work that you're doing. Does that sound correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've had it happen. I was a restaurant consultant for a while and I was actually in food safety. And there were many times that there were things that people did. I can't actually talk about it. One of the things about <laughs> consultants is, you know, we're under confidential agreements, but I have seen some really knuckleheaded things that people do. And they were just so used to doing those knuckleheaded things. It took someone from the outside to say, no, this is wrong. You really should be doing it this way. And in a couple of those cases, it actually was better for them 
not just from a food safety point of view, but we were actually finding food costs changed and they had better profitability by just making a few simple changes. And how many restaurants do you think you saw within a year when you were doing that? Within a year? Oh, hundreds. So it's like you're seeing all these restaurants and you can kind of see like patterns within these restaurants and what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. So it's almost helpful that you've seen an aggregation, I guess, of all these restaurants and businesses and you could provide like knowledge and experience knowing all those restaurants to specific ones as you consult. Like, I think that's part of the benefit of a consultant or contractors. They've seen like all the problems and all the mistakes that knuckleheaded things as you've (laughs) referred to the technical term. Yeah. You've seen all those things. So you can like provide some help because you've kind of aggregated all that and seen all those patterns or anti-patterns, I guess. Oh yeah. I mean, I can give you just one example of something simple as gloves is there's a lot of problems with gloves in many different industries. You know, it is the law that people are supposed to be wearing gloves before they handle something that's a a ready to eat food, something that's going to go into somebody's mouth. And many times you, you see patterns of these things, but there's also solutions that you don't necessarily need gloves. There are places where gloves are hazardous. I have people who making hamburgers on flame grills, right? You're going to melt the glove on someone's hand and burn their hand off. That's just not happening, but there are alternatives. And so everyone's saying, well, I can't use the glove, so I'll use my fingers. First of all, they should be using tongs anyway, when they're handling hot things on the grill anyway. Those are charcoal grills. So, I mean, they were really hot. You're not going to be picking things off your hand. So they're using tongs. They use the tongs for handling the food while it's there. They keep the tongs relatively warm. I don't have a problem with it. Picking up the raw burgers, I wanted them to use deli tissue and just throw away the deli tissue. Right. Those were simple things that, I mean, it it was relatively cheap to do that. And it just made the whole process safer. And it's like to them, maybe they just don't think of the things. It's one of the things they don't know what they don't know, right? And you come in and you've had all this experience and you can bring your experience to that and be like, by the way, you know, have you ever thought about using deli tissue instead of, you know? Right. Yeah. It makes total sense. And I think like we did a episode with Peter a couple episodes ago, he was talking about like source control. That's a great example where people just don't understand. It's amazing how ignorant people are of the different things you could do with source control and get and like branching. And a lot of teams don't know about that stuff. And that's something where an outside consultant can come in and be like, Hey, you know, you probably should be using feature branches like this. You should probably set up some sort of continuous integration here's some patterns where how people do develop their views and and things like this, that on an aggregate, that experience is super helpful to companies because, you know, they're focused on what they do as opposed to like seeing the big picture of how certain patterns can be implemented. Yeah. I mean, another good example of one that I like to throw around a lot is the newer documentation features. They've been there for a while where you could type them in, but there's new documentation features in Xcode where you can command click and for every function, create a full set of documentation, which becomes your quick tip in your application. Here, any listener wants to hear this. If you want to do training material on Xcode, you'd make so much money on it. (laughs) That is such a mammoth piece of program and developer tool that there are so many tips and tricks with Xcode for sure. I think the tip is coming out shortly so, for exactly that whole bit of documentation, which is why I have it so head on my head. So one of the things I do on LinkedIn Learning is iOS development tips, and we are weekly to put out tips to do things exactly like that. And so that's one that I'm a big fan of. 
get documentation on everything. You know, you get your quick tips where you can then hit the option, click on something, and it's your code that's showing those things, which when you have a team, not everyone's going to know what you did with everything. Yes. Yeah. The documentation features are not very documented. Can I say that? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But they're getting a lot better. I know there's some stuff on the Swift website where they've really updated that and show a lot of potential when it comes to that stuff. And I have played around with like Jazzy before, which I think is put up by the REL team. And there's a lot of great stuff when it comes to documentation in Swift that is super helpful when it comes to teams. So I wanted to ask, how can a company figure out when they have good material? Like, what is a good way to judge good training material for their company? I think there's a couple things you have to look for. First of all, what do they mean by good? And that goes back to two things we've already talked about. One is appropriate material. and that fits their internal worldview. So it's, you know, I'll pick on singletons because it's a good one to pick on. (laughs) I can make sure I can get a shouting match going on singletons, for example. There are some people who find that singletons work within the right context really well. Some people consider them just another global variable and will start screaming when you throw a singleton in. That's a cultural thing. And that works with whatever your organization happens to do. So there are programming patterns, there's programming practices, and you're going to want to look at the training material that more matches your programming practices than necessarily just a general code. So stuff that I write might be better than, say, Ray Wenderlich, for example. On the other hand, I may have style things that work better for some organizations than they do. So, I mean, that's where you're going to start seeing things. And even among authors within anybody's library. All those libraries are going to have different style features. And so you need to sort of evaluate those to look at what style they're taking. You may get tips and tricks on the code, but there'll be other things that we're doing that you have to be careful about what's going on. So that's one thing to watch for. The other thing I'd like to watch for is there's just things that are just bad. I see a lot of training out there that it wasn't thought out well. They just throw things on. It goes into what I call the YouTube culture. And you see a lot of people who, first of all, their auto quality is a horrible. Their videos are done very badly so that you can't even read the type on the screen. You want to be able to visualize what you are seeing if you're looking at video in particular, that you can see that the code being written. If I see little tiny type that I have to put my eyes up to the screen, that's a problem. So you want a good visual, you want a good audio quality on those materials as well. There's stuff out there that that probably the content is great, but the visual and audio are bad. On the other hand, there are places where the content doesn't build up properly. And when you look at content in training, there are certain ways that you're going to build it up. There's something called the Bloom's Taxonomy, which I don't know if you've ever heard of, but Benjamin Bloom came up with this idea, and I'm going to stick with only one of his schemes here, where you start with knowledge level stuff and you work your way up to higher level thinking. And many people will jump to a high level of thinking without doing some of the knowledge level, and the gap is too strong for people to understand what's going on. So yes, you can't do it all the way from the beginning. I can't explain assignment on a video I'm doing on view controllers, for example. But 
I can start saying, okay, so this is a view controller. And because this is a view controller, I can do two view controllers together, put them in a tab bar controller. I could talk about that, but you need to have basic knowledge and make sure that your audience has that basic knowledge. So build up to it as well. If you don't see the build up, people are going to get lost. Yeah, I feel like that's my biggest challenge is that there's a really great book called Made to Stick. Yeah, it's uh, Chip and Dan Heath. Yes. And one of the problems is like, if you're just like talking a bunch of like, like you said, you're talking about view controllers and people don't understand some of the basic syntax of Swift. It's just like, you're just making noise and people aren't going to figure out what the heck you're talking about. I really got to look at that Bloom's taxonomy because that's one of my big struggles is I have such a large knowledge set. So it's like, oh, you know, obviously you must understand A, B, and C. And I'm talking about D, E, F, and they don't have a single clue about A, B, and C yet. And it's hard for those of us that are highly experienced to like take five or seven steps back before they start jumping into the more technical knowledge set. So yeah, I think that's a really great point. And then just a couple of tips, you know, we were talking about Xcode earlier. One thing is if you're recording video in Xcode, I know we'll we'll get into some recording video tips because I know you did a really good presentation at 360 iDev. But one of the things is like switch to presentation mode. You'd be surprised at some of the issues when it comes to recording video, how big text actually has to be like in order for people to see it. Like you really have to blow it up because the other problem is, is if for some reason, like they're streaming on or not streaming, but they're playing on YouTube, like sometimes people's connections aren't great. And when you start downgrading it to a lower resolution, the text becomes really hard to read if it's very small. So one of the things is like make your text really big, switch to like the, I think it's like presentation large when you go into Xcode, record when it's in that style. So that way it's much easier to read once you record your video. You know, let's get into it. But like what other tips do you have when it comes to recording video of coding training and things like that? When I'm recording, there's a couple of things that I like to make sure are true. One is a relatively decent mic. You're not going to be doing this off of your AirPods or something like that where people can't understand you. Make sure you're doing it in a quiet room so you don't have distracting noises in the back. That can get really annoying very fast. Going back to what you're talking about, I try to keep my fonts somewhere between 22 and up as far as point sizes. Works very well, and that gives you a good sense. Yeah. Make sure you've got a good screen resolution. Yes. Screen resolution presents some problems because you've got to make it big enough that people can see it. But you also got to keep the files compact enough that they can actually be usable. So, I mean, there's, there's some resolution issues there. I try to keep to a 16-9 aspect ratio to make sure that you've got standard HD that it'll work on everything. And I also want to point out something that is important when you're talking about these fonts. Not everyone's going to be doing this on their desktop. A lot of times people will be trying to look at this stuff on their phone. And that's an awfully small screen to be doing what would normally be a 10-point font is now a two-point font. So even if it's clear, it's hard to read. So you got to be careful about a lot of those things. Make sure you have a script. I'm a big fan of scripts when you're writing these things is sit here and try to read as much of it off of the page as possible. It keeps your cues in place. There's the live demo syndrome, which I know a lot of people get into the problem with. I've done it myself, where you're busy doing your live demo, and because you're doing it pretty much off the cuff, you do not have a script, things can go wrong. And I've seen that many, many times in many conferences. 
you go ahead and try to do something, and this is the one time it fails on you. Well, a lot of times that's because you skipped a step that you were supposed to do and you forgot about it. When you're doing a video, you can put right next to you, and I usually have it on my iPad, my script, and I'm going almost according to the script, at least the code, what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to put this line in. I'm supposed to put this line in. I'm supposed to put this line in so that the code is showing up at exactly the right place at the right time. I actually did have one live problem with that, by the way, which I always like to talk about. And this is a good story about why you follow scripts. I had been following that script so much and practicing it so much. I had planned to make a mistake in there intentionally. And I was so good at the script, as you'll hear in that presentation, I didn't make a mistake. It went perfect. And I was supposed to make the mistake, and I didn't. So, I mean, that's a good reinforcement of why you want to use a script. And you can even practice it because you'll get it right the first time. And that saves you tons of time on editing. And then I'll provide some info as far as like good microphones. You know, I'm a big fan of the ATR 2100. That's common one use. And then there's a few others. We talked about microphones before the show, but I don't know if you have any personal recommendations. But yeah, a good microphone is important for sure. I like my Sennheiser. Yeah, I've heard a lot of good things about Sennheisers. So we talked about like training material. How about like a good curriculum online? Not necessarily like just a training material, but like how can you judge based on what you see online as far as a good curriculum to purchase? I think the reputation of many of the firms is going to be the biggest way you can look at them. Okay. I mean, I'm biased here. Okay. You know, I sell videos through LinkedIn Learning. So to give my full disclosure here, I make money and royalties off of videos if you get them from LinkedIn Learning. But if I were going to someone else, Udemy or whoever else it may be, or even looking at some course on YouTube, how do you decide which one's a good one to go with? And I think it really comes down to... First of all, how many videos did that company make on this? The bigger their library, it's more likely they're going to be involved with it more. The second thing you're going to find is even looking at one video, many of them have free welcome videos. Looking at the welcome video, how did they put that together? Is that a high quality video or is it a lesser quality video? And that's going to tell you a lot of what's going on. Those videos will also give you generally a good summary of what the whole course is going to be. Many of these companies also will put together full tracks of saying, okay, here is the iOS development track. Here is the tiny SQL track. Here is this track. And, and they'll go through those tracks. And if you look at what those lists of tracks are, you can see, is this the kind of curriculum that I want to be following? So it sounds like how many videos they have, what is our welcome video show, but also how well organized they are into specific APIs, I guess you could say. Yeah. So let's get into a little bit more about Swift specifically. What has been some of your challenge, especially since WWDC, when it comes to producing training material in regards to Swift? It has been a thorn in my side. I won't even start with Swift. I'm going to start with Xcode. <laughs> yeah, please do. My favorite Red Queen story has got to be practical auto layout for, I think it was iOS 8. I haven't updated it since then. I worked very hard on putting together a book on, it was the third edition on practical auto layout of how to do auto layout properly and how to understand auto layout because I know it's hard to wrap your head around it sometimes. So I wrote the whole book. 
I published it through Amazon. Three days later, the resolver button moved from a button to a menu, which essentially obsoleted the whole book. <laughs> oh, man. Which was a minor upgrade. And that's part of the biggest problem that I find and the biggest challenge I find with training in general. I saw it just the other day is you can't publish a book fast enough. I was in Barnes & Noble on Black Friday for fun, and the only iOS book they have is an iOS 9 basic training book. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Can't publish a book fast enough. Even electronically, in video, I have the same problem. I have a very short freshness time on almost all my videos. I ran into that problem on several of the videos, one in particular, the Playgrounds video. They changed the entire interface on me while we were in post-production. So we had to re-record 30 different scenes just to get everything to look like you would see on your screen. Yeah, Xcode is one of the bigger challenges because of all the changes that they keep making. It just like, I'll say it, like sometimes it can be a bit buggy and things don't work out the way you do and you have to do some hand waving in order to get it, like the video to actually look half decent. Right. And then, you know, the other thing is like, it's just some of the API changes are constant. Like, I can't believe I've seen people put out Swift UI material over the summer. And it's just like, this stuff is constantly changing. Names are changing. It almost seems like some of the easier stuff to work on might be the older stuff that people use more often. I don't know how else you can deal with that when it comes to all the updates that are happening. I mean, thank God Swift is pretty stable right now, as opposed to the way it used to be back in Swift 2 and 3. But how do you deal with that? Just the, like the constant updates besides just constantly producing material, I guess. I think, well, one thing is, of course, you're going to do lots of updates. I am one of those people who did a Swift UI. We did it this fall. I waited until we had a production version out, which is still going to be a huge amount of changes between now and June. Yes. But with all those kinds of changes, you first of all going to assume there's going to be changes and you make that clear. There's yes. going to be changes. There are things that still don't work really well. There are some things that I'm just waiting people to scream bloody murder about. For example, printing with format. Yeah, print format doesn't work yet in Swift UI in places if you put it in a text. And there's a bunch of different things that, you know, string format is what I meant. But there's different things that people are going to start changing around and saying, well, this should work better this way, this should work better this way. So yeah, those are going to happen. With these bigger videos that are early, I tend to look at it this way. There's some very fundamental things that won't change. Reactive programming is going to be the standard. It's going to be the core of Swift UI. It almost goes back to what we were saying earlier about like coding versus programming. Like the patterns are going to remain. It's the syntax that'll change. You're going to get syntax changes. You're going to get small functional changes. Particularly, I think you're going to see in the uh, for each and lists, you're going to see huge changes. We still haven't seen collection views yet. Right. Yeah. What that's going to look like. That's going to have to happen sometime. Those kinds of things are going to be changes, but you're still going to have to know a basic of combine. And that's going to be something that I think you'll see with Apple all over the place. Now that they've come out with combine, you're going to start seeing that show up everywhere more and more. And we're going to start seeing more reactive stuff. Yeah. And the patterns are going to remain as far as like combine and the subscriber publisher model or reactive programming, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. And I mean, there's plenty of places where you're going to see that continue to be. I mean, it's, 
been there for a while. I mean, this is still property observer stuff. Yeah, and you hear a lot of these like objective reactive or reactive Swift folks who've been doing this stuff for much longer than Apple has. And they're like, yeah, we already know how to do this. And actually, we're a lot better at it. And we have a lot more robust APIs than Combine or Swift UI has. Yeah, I mean, it's there. And we've had precedents from it before. I always look at Apple when you're starting to look at these things, that they have character arcs like you would see in many movies and TV shows. They have their character arcs just like anybody else. If you follow the character arcs, you see that they're starting to head in different directions. They had a huge character arc for a while on really pleasing the gamer industry. That was started with SpriteKit and went on to SceneKit and Metal and all those things and making those much more integrated into the software. Swift is a huge character arc onto itself. It was a shock to a lot of people. But once you start seeing what they were doing with Swift, and you can see they're trying to handle many of the issues that they have internally with Objective-C. Because Objective-C can be a nightmare for a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, Objective-C, I'm not an Objective-C hater, but you got to the point where like five years ago, 10 years ago, when they started adding different syntaxes to Objective-C to make it more comfortable for a larger audience. And it almost felt like things were getting like tacked on that weren't really part of the overall pattern of Objective-C. And it made total sense to just like, let's start with a brand new language because it was getting a little bit bloated at one point. So yeah, and now we see with Swift UI, like the full transformation of Swift into the like default language, more or less of Apple development. Yeah, I mean, They've had other arcs, and SwiftUI has a lot of its roots in Apple Watch. They tend to borrow things from themselves. So the whole pretty much stack orientation is an Apple Watch thing from day one of Apple Watch, that you built everything on stacks. So, I mean, you're going to find that they do those kinds of things. But if you start learning that technology early, and if you start keeping involved with that technology, going back to, to the point we were talking about, you're ready for whatever they're going to change on to you next. You can start to see these curves or these arcs and start saying, okay, they're probably going to go in this direction. I'm ready for that. Yeah, and I think, like, I've watched development since day one, and I am very ready to no longer do watch kit. It's okay, but, like, SwiftUI, I'm building an app for the watch using SwiftUI. And it's like, if there's any place where SwiftUI is a good fit, it's on the watch, like you said, which is, of course, where it originally came from. So it seems to me like what you're saying is a technology, it's good to learn it right away, but you need to almost like stick with it through that character arc, as you call it. Yeah, we don't get interested in a character halfway through its arc. We always get interested in the beginning of the arc. And sometimes we'll see some interesting things that happen with that. There are some things in SwiftUI, starting with, Version 3.1 of iPad Playgrounds, for example. Another really great place that SwiftUI has shown up is on the iPad Playground, which means you don't have to okay. send 700 lines of code doing auto layout in code to get a UI prototype out. It's much, much easier these days. Yes. Yeah. That's one of the places where if I'm doing have, uh, quick and dirty prototypes first people, that's somewhere I want to use it. But you start seeing those arcs, and early on in the arc, you get the main points. You get the main story. And then as the story refines itself, you're into that story already. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. 
And I think, like you said, the stuff is going to constantly change. If you don't want to be in an industry where things are changing constantly, don't be in software development. No, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on, Steve. Is there anything else you wanted to mention before we close out? Not that I could think of. I mean, if you want to look into some of those tips that I've been talking about, they are free for one week when they get published. So you can try going out to the LinkedIn learning site for iOS Development Tips Weekly and check out some of those tips. Awesome. And we'll provide links to that as well in the notes. Where can people find you online? You can find me online at uh, makeappie.com. And I am at Twitter at Stephen Lipton. And you can find me again on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And then we'll provide a link to iOS development tips on Microsoft Learning as well. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you, audience, for joining us. We are on Twitter. My company is at Bright Digit. And also you can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. Please subscribe. Uh, we have some more episodes coming out very soon. And thanks again, Steve, for coming on.